And welcome to One and Done TV. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am the other one of your co-hosts, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. Isn't that right, John? Yeah, we're doing a little cha-cha real smooth right on there, bad boys. And we're digging into... What they were, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. I'm feeling very like shock jockey right now. Maybe I should turn it back. I like the shock jockey. You like John. the shock jock. It's better than generic, John. Shut. <laughs> you brought it up last episode. I know. I know. Hashtag generic John. Bury his feed with it. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I heard bury his seed with it, and I knew that wasn't right. Oh, my God. This is a PG podcast. <laughs> yeah, I can't do any bleep and bleeps on this one. But No. Uh, today we we're... could bleep those bleeps. We could. And they do bleep a couple times in today's show, the 2022 Fox comedy Pivoting. Which is about three moms, and we'll get into that after we talk about what we're watching right now. John, what are you watching? I just finished up Below Deck Mediterranean. Now My I had God. I had previously finished Below Deck, what I call Below Deck OG. I just finished Below Deck Mediterranean, which is the same thing, except it's in the Mediterranean. The cast of Mediterranean features some of the worst and some of the best people that I've seen on the show. There was a lot of drama in those six seasons. Actually, the seventh season just started the day before we're recording this. So I got to catch up on that, but I'm now getting into below deck sailing yacht. That's a whole thing. And no below deck Mediterranean turned out to be a wild, wild ride. Uh, Somebody was fired for having drugs on board. Somebody cursed out an entire cruise worth of people in one night. Well, let me tell you if there's a kitchen in any boat, there's drugs on board. If there's a chef or a sous chef and a waiter, there's drugs on board. Those chefs are, whatever drugs they're taking, they're working because the chefs on these shows are incredible. They make the most insane dishes, except for the one time that there was a chef on board who could, what was the one thing that, she did not, oh, she used too much baking soda in a cake so that it only tasted like baking soda. And it was just like a standard chocolate cake. She got fired pretty quickly. Oh, Mina. She was also a homophobe. It wasn't a great fit. But Below Deck Mediterranean. Stand- homophobes do make standard chocolate cakes. That's a rule. <laughs> not all people that make standard chocolate cakes are homophobes, but all homophobes do make standard chocolate cakes. Exclusively. Exclusively. So... I'll I'll keep the listeners updated once I finish sailing yacht. It'll be a wild, wild ride. Cannot wait. Ian, what about you? What are you watching? Uh, so I got real dark this week, and I watched a Netflix documentary about a fertility doctor 
that ended up impregnating many, many women with his own seed. Uh, yeah, I heard about of, that. Oh, man. Yeah, and it's all like it's on 23andMe. Like people just started getting on there and they were all, you know, a lot of these people thought that their fathers were their biological fathers. And it turns out this uh, guy's a total creep. It's on Netflix. Can't remember what it's called, but I, I recommend it. It's it's just bad. And then the other thing I watched was Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What was that, what was that one again? It's a Netflix four-part series about this. Um, it's a Mormon cult out of, I don't think it's Utah. The movie was Our Father. Our Father. Oh, man. That uh, kind of sounds like the Kelsey Grammer movie with Kristen Bell. Like Father. Our Father. Yeah, no, but now I'm talking about Like Father with Kelsey Grammer and Kristen Bell, which I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who ever watched that movie. But yeah, uh, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. It's a four-part Netflix series with very dark subject matter. It's about like a small Mormon cult. Like they're, you know, they're a sect of Mormonism that is not uh, given the blessing of the Mormon church. They have a lot of weird practices that kind of sounds like some people just made up and then told whoever lived there that it was going to get them to heaven. And uh, I don't, I don't know what heaven, what gets you into heaven, but I can tell you that doesn't. Okay. So if you watch it, don't do what they do because it's bad. So you're saying it wouldn't make a good Tony winning musical if we explored this side of Mormonism. I think it could. It just wouldn't be funny. It would be uh, more like a Les Mis type. The trudge of Les Mis without the grandeur of Les Mis. Ooh, somebody's taking out $6 words. Uh, Five and a half is on sale. Oh. Well, John, I think after all that talk, it's showtime. Five, four. Three, two, one, showtime! In January 2022, Fox launched this middle-aged friendship motherhood comedy. Three friends decide to change their lives for the better after the death of their friend Colleen rattles them into realizing that life is short. Despite a perfect 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes, Fox pulled the plug in May 2022 after only 10 episodes. This show was created by Liz Astroff, who is a veteran comedy writer. Seems to have had like quite an illustrious career around oh, yeah. Hollywood. She started on Becker, then she hopped over to John, you're gonna love this, coupling. I saw that. Didn't she create the the US version of coupling? That's what it was. I just assumed she worked on the British version. I was no, like, no, 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 no. She did the American one, the oh. the really bad one. Oh, yikes! Which we should do that. at some point. But uh, yeah, considering you love the British version, I hate the British version, <laughs> uh, which is the original version. Uh, then she were, went on to work on King of Queens. Had a lot of success there. A lot of success with Two Broke Girls. And then I think that she helped shepherd the Connors out of the Roseanne era as well. 
And she wrote this script for Pivoting about seven years ago when her friend passed away. And she really did have a group of friends when I, I listened to a, uh, an interview with her. When they hit 40, it was like everyone freaked out. Her friend died and everyone was like, oh my God, we're going to die someday. And even if they didn't know Colleen, she knew people that were like having affairs, getting divorces, having babies out of nowhere, people you would never expect to like be living double lives. And these were mostly moms. And of course she had to write a show about it. Was Colleen her friend like too? Colleen was really her friend and her friend's name. Yeah. Yes. It felt very personal watching the show. I mean, the, it does, I mean, we'll get into it, but it does dive a lot into sort of traditional sitcom setups and lots of, you know, hijinks and ensuing. But the the morning part of the show did feel very true and real. It, and I, I could sense that sort of grounding. I just didn't realize that it went all the way down to the name itself, which is kind of a nice memorial, I think. Yeah, it was very personal. She actually wrote a book recently uh, that's called Don't Wait Up, Confessions of a Stay-at-Work Mom. Hmm. So obviously the main character, Amy, is based off of her because we'll get into it. Amy is a stay-at-work mom. She works a lot and then doesn't see her kids. And uh, there's obviously the parallel there. Uh, This show is based on three main characters, Amy, Jody, and Sarah. We meet them gossiping about terrible hair and makeup of a woman, but they're wearing all black, and it turns out that that woman is their friend Colleen lying in the casket. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I love that it starts with them like they're talking about someone behind their back, but it turns out they're just like, oh my gosh, can you believe what The Undertaker did? Yeah. It is a show that is ultimately about death, talks a lot about death, never takes death too seriously, though, throughout it, No, which was a nice and refreshing turn for a TV show to take. So I listened to an interview with one of the actors, and he brought up a good point. He was just like, nobody's moping. They all mm-hmm. have their moments of sadness and breaking down, but they do a good job of making sure it's not too saccharine. And he thought it's really, it's like life because we all just have to move forward. We all just have to keep going on with our lives and we can stop to have moments of sadness, of real grief or just reflection, but nobody was wallowing. Yeah. I think that, that feels very true when you're going through the grieving process. Honestly, if I was having somebody film me during like the darkest parts of like my recent grieving, I think that would make for very boring TV. I do. Because I think the saddest I've been, I've literally just been like laying in bed watching YouTube videos. And that's not very compelling TV. So you could, you don't, I never get the sense watching the show that those characters aren't having those moments where they aren't like deeply missing their friend, Colleen. But you also, I, 
I was able to quickly trust the show that it was only showing me the stuff that was meant to entertain me and then seeing that sort of sad stuff creeping in but never staying for too long. Yeah, I mean, Colleen's death and their reaction to it does drive a lot of the plot, not just the beginning of the season, but there are certain episodes where they go back to being like, you know what? Colleen was impressed with the fact that I was a doctor and now I'm not a doctor. And I lied about the thing, the other things she was impressed with me with. So now I have to accomplish that thing I lied about so that I can feel like Colleen is impressed by me. Yeah. And that's Sarah in a later episode trying to run a six minute mile. Um, but so, so the beginning, Colleen's death, uh, they're all start starting to reflect. And there's just a good line in there. Uh, one of them says, we should have known she'd die first. The smoking, the gluten, the jaywalking. <laughs> and all three of them reflect, reflect on their lives and want to make a big life change. And these are um, all like childhood friends, too. And that was something that I really resonated with so this is the three living of the four like big childhood friends that clearly have known each other since kindergarten i got to admit i was taught i was thinking a lot about you and i was thinking a lot about our friends as i was watching the show and how they sort of tight crew that's been uh hanging out from the beginning of elementary school or Mm -hmm. you know throughout then Yeah. yeah and so you could really feel that sort of sense of history within the writing you know they didn't always have to talk about all of these things that happened to them they just would sort of bring up stuff that meant something to them in the moment that made sense to them like you know there was a mention of you know loaning somebody underwear when they sat in lemonade in first grade and it's like sarah you peed your pants it's like yeah I know I peed my pants, but like you were She's there. like, but me. you're a good friend because you still will say I sat in lemonade, even though we both know I peed my pants. It's it's that sort of innate sense of history that I is really early, well established early on. I yes, think, with the show, and also they're all very comfortable with one another, and they have that friendship thing where they all speak the same language, and they're in their own little bubble. And Colleen is kind of like an appendage of theirs that was lopped off, but the energy still carried on through the three of them. And it was really nice to see three middle-aged women that have been friends for a very long time. I feel with that sort of thing in movies and television, it's usually about men that have been friends for a long time. Or if it's about women, it's like, you know, it's about the biological side of things as opposed to the existential dread that I feel like these women are feeling. You know, it's like, you know, I'm about to hit menopause or I'm about to, yeah, I can't have kids anymore. It sort of tries to dive into those tropes, whereas these are just women who are sort of at the midpoint of their life and they're taking new turns with you know with their careers with their families with their friends with their kids right they're all together in their own ways trying to rediscover 
joy. Yeah. Whether it's in their careers, their relationships, or whatever, they're really nitpicking the things about their lives that they don't like, and they are trying to fix them, even if to a certain extent they feel trapped or they are trapped in, in that, if it's a big change, and mm. even if it's selfish, yeah, which I liked about yeah. this show. They're not afraid to be selfish, no, which I like. Can we take a step back and sort of dive into each of the characters? Absolutely, John. I think we'll take a quick commercial break, and then we'll get right back with that. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to this character log slash exposition dump. We've got three main characters with three distinct points of view and storylines that are established very early and their personal stories pretty much deal with one or two issues that they have for the whole season. So we're going to start out with Amy, who's the main character. She's played by Eliza Coop, who you might know from Happy Endings or, no judgment, Scrubs Interns. Eliza Coop is always really great at playing stern characters who always have something else going on. That is well, her and, sort of bread and butter. In this case, she's a little bit more bubbly, though. Yeah, right? definitely. This is one of the warmer sort of sides of her that I've seen as someone that has been a big a little fan of closer her to for happy a while. endings, right? Yeah, but even happy endings, she was more of like a an archetype than she was a human. She was the hmm. type A sort of neat freak person, whereas here she had definitely more depth than I've seen in other projects that she's been in. Well, let's dive into Amy then. Mm -hmm. She starts out at a high-stress job as a producer on a cooking show. Despite getting off of work at 1 p.m., she tends to actively avoid her kids. But after Colleen's death, she vows to be a more active mother. She realizes that her kids are more comfortable with their nanny, Gloria, than they are with her, which makes her very territorial around Gloria, which usually is pretty funny. Her husband, played by Tommy Dewey, a.k.a. the guy from Casual, who we've brought up on several times on this podcast. Which I've liked Casual, but you seem to like associate my you enjoyment love of Casual. <laughs> Keep putting that on me. You love Ooh. it. You're just like Jason Reitman. Num, 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 num. Shovel that love onto you my face. You probably love the new Ghostbusters, trip. didn't you? No. Okay, I didn't even bother seeing it, but I am saying you're such a Jason Reitman fan that you would see the new Ghostbusters. I did see Labor Day. That's how much I like Jason Reitman. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Oh, it's terrible. 
Uh, so Tommy Dewey plays her husband, and he is excited she's making more of an effort, and even eventually in the season is kind of turned on by her nurturing efforts, and that revitalizes their sex life as a couple, which is pretty funny. Uh, what I like about him is he's very supportive, but he also sees through the lies that she tells, and he actively cuts to the root of whatever scheme she's planning to get around it so that they don't fight and they can just make up already and be an honest couple. And if y'all listen to our Ordinary Joe episode, I complimented that show on how it does not ride a lie from a character too long to force drama onto the situations. And this show, I will give the same props to. The thing that works about the way that this show deals with lies, especially Amy's lies, is that Amy is a perpetual liar. And so she lies about everything. She lies about where she is, what she's doing, who she's with. So it's not necessarily her keeping secrets. It's more just a part of her personality, which I think makes it work a lot better. That's a great distinction. It's not about keeping secrets. It's about just kind of lying instead of instead of like having a slightly more difficult conversation. Yeah. And so much so that of it being a personality trait that other characters like Jody enlist her to help her lie. Right. Or like her husband, I think, kind of is like, you're lying like this is this is kind of cute. So I really like their relationship and I like that this show, especially comedies, will ride really hard on the fact that somebody's lying or not saying a piece of information and that it drives the comedy for an entire episode. And I love that this show doesn't do that. For sure. And also when it comes to her kids, too, you know, one of the big things is that, you know, like you said, she avoids her kids, but she doesn't not love her kids. She just doesn't know how to function around them because they are so distinctly different from her as a person. Right. Which leads me to my next point about her. Along the run of the show, she takes every opportunity she can to be distracted by her friend's problems instead of dealing with her own problems. And it's kind of funny. She comes up with creative ways to pawn her kids like off onto other people and make it seem like she's more involved than she actually is, even though she is genuinely becoming more involved in her li- their lives. Throughout the season, she becomes more comfortable around them, finding ways to accept their weirdness, defend them from people at school or other families that think their kids are weird or don't invite her son to a birthday party or bullies on the roller rink, and she becomes more involved in her son's love of animals. Yeah, which was sweet. Which was really sweet. And the series ends with Amy having to choose between a promotion that would cause her to work longer hours and would take away from her all this new mom time she's getting and finally starting to really love or become unemployed, which her identity is a working mom. So that's that's how the series leaves her off. Yeah, the series definitely leaves, I think, most of its main characters sort of, it's not, there's not a lot of cliffhangers or anything like that, but there's more to be said. And she is definitely one of them. But I mean, she's got to be choosing her kids. They've 
one of the sweeter things I liked is as she became more involved with her kids, as she cared more about their safety, she's like going through this list of, you know, eh, do I want to work? Do I want to be more of mom? And uh, her husband says, you know, you are smiling more. And she's like, I do smile more. It's nice. It's a, it's a, it's a nice show about death and you love how nice it is. I love nice things. You're I a nice it. boy. You're a nice look at that punum. As you said in the last episode, I'm I'm a little soft boy. You know, I'm I'm Kyle Chandler's. You are no sweeter. soft boy, Kyle Chandler, okay? You're like soft boy Bob Balaban or something. <laughs> uh you're yeah, or soft boy Mike Ermintrout. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, how is is it Bob Balaban the soft? Is it Bob Balaban the soft version of Bob Balaban? Hey, Bob Balaban can play intense characters too. Okay, he's a phenomenal actor. He's got range, honey. I know he's got range, but it doesn't go that far. Yeah, it does. He has seen not... The Late Shift, one of my favorite movies for some reason, and he gets bowled over every single time he's on any sort of conversation with anyone. I am going to share several clips with you that Gosh. show you that he does not get bowled over in that Ian, movie. Ian, I don't need you to deal with the late shift more. Okay, I think our listeners need to know this. Ian is obsessed <laughs> with this HBO original movie called The Late Shift. I love it. It is, a, it is about the uh, feud between David Letterman and Jay Leno as they are competing for to take over for Johnny Carson for The Tonight Show. It is a fine movie. There is... Nothing offensive or bad about it. Ian has seen it maybe 60 times. I had a period about this time last year where I watched it literally 20 times in about two months. Good God. And it was just like comforting to me. It's an early 90s movie. But what fascinates me about it is it really rides the line between being good and being really bad. And it's kind of fascinating to me because some of the performances are incredible. Some of them are terrible. Some moments are amazing in the writing and directing. Some of them are such slack. And the music, oh man, the music's bad. But it could have been great. And that's, I think, part of me, like, I love to analyze it. You are just a creature for disappointment and a magnet for it as well. (laughs) Do you have anything else to say about Amy, or should we move on? No, to let's move on to Sarah, who is played by Maggie Q, who you might know from the Divergent series or the Kiefer Sutherland show Designated Survivor. Do you know her from either of those things? No. <laughs> oh, there was one thing I recognized her from, but I cannot remember. I mean, I've seen her in something, but those are like her two big things. I've never seen Divergent. And what, am I going to watch The Designated Survivor? No. No. That's like Netflix trying to be CBS for some reason. <laughs> well, because it was a CBS show, and then Netflix picked it <gasps> oh, up. Oh, right. Yeah. It's such a CBS, <laughs> like, old people should watch this show drama. And then, of course, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so, <laughs> so... Sarah starts out the show as a top surgeon, but she realizes that she was working far too much of her life, literally 19-hour shifts, and she decides to quit so that she can reclaim her time. 
walking around a grocery store, she is mesmerized by their simple jobs that seem to be so much fun. So she starts working there as a baggage associate. Unfortunately, she's too good at her job and starts to rub her colleagues the wrong way. They bully her because she is making the people at the top think maybe they can squeeze more production out of the employees. While Sarah works on chilling out, she starts dating again. She is fresh off of a messy divorce with her ex-wife who still uses Sarah's credit card despite having cheated on her. Not having a family of her own, Sarah tends to hang out with Colleen's widower Brian and child a little more than the others do, helping to plan birthday parties or just kind of hanging out to decompress. She also tends to find ways to continue medicine, whether it's resuscitating someone in the produce aisle or diagnosing her friend's genital diseases for them. By the end of the series, she's dating a younger, hipper woman than her. It seems to be going well until she gets drunk with Brian and sleeps with him while they both wear blonde wigs. The series ends without anyone knowing about that. Yeah. She is so ambitious and sort of holds a lot to herself. She, she definitely has sort of, I think the hardest exterior, I think of any of the, the friends. Um, well, she's very type a, she's very logical. She's like, why wouldn't you work your hardest? And the grocery store people are like, I've been here for 10 years. They don't pay me anything. Like, what are you doing making me look this bad? You know, like to her, it's like some fun thing, but to them, it's their life. Yeah. And she just doesn't understand why. She's like, but we could be doing things so much better. And they're like, they don't pay us to do better. I did like, though, that throughout her journey as a gross, as a, sorry, as a bagging associate, that you. she, the most regret that she feels about that is, her sort of general disappointment that she would maybe potentially feel from Colleen. Cause that is her big thing when she asks Colleen's husband, Brian about what Colleen loved about Sarah. He was always, he was like, Oh, she loved that you were a doctor and she loved that you would go out and save people. And that's the only regret that she feels everything else. It just seems like she's having a ball. And she's able to actually enjoy her life because that's one of the things that she feels like she's missing at the beginning of the show is she feels like she's stuck at the hospital and therefore she can't actually have a real life. And that brings her ultimately closer to the people around her. Her only stressor, good point, her only stressors really are dating and her Mm ex-wife, which Actually, the ex-wife wasn't even introduced till episode maybe three, I'm going to say. I don't think we even knew about her, right? No, we did not until she showed up at the grocery store. And it felt like a post-pilot decision. Yeah. Where yeah. they added that onto her character because she needed a little bit more drama to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was... I mean, it, it, it went well. It's just that I could tell I don't think that was in her original character vision. Yeah, it felt like, okay, we need to give her a little bit more. If her entire story is she's always at the hospital and now she's not at the hospital, we need to give her a little bit more of a history in order to justify the directions that we want to take her. Exactly. 
And actually, what this show did really well was uh, there's a really fun, I think it's episode three, uh, storyline where they all take edibles and they go to steal Sarah's tree from the backyard of her ex's house. Her fig tree. Her fig tree, which uh, there's a talking fig played by J.B. Smoove, which I thought was a very fun uh, aside. Yeah. And this show did that really well, I think, where they would come up with a mission. Then they would write, one of the friends has a problem. They come up with a mission where they're all going to tackle it together. And then they go there. And then they spend like a lot of time together in a different location. And it's not just get in, get out. And it's not just go in there, hilarity ensues. This show takes the time for these friends to get to a space, spend a solid 10 minutes there, and just kind of talk about their lives, deal with the problem, have some fun asides. It There's a lot of dialogue in this show, and in that aspect, it moves very quickly. Mm-hmm. I got to think that this has like at least five more pages per episode worth of dialogue than most scripts do. Yeah. But what they do to combat that is when they're together in action, everything slows down. And I Mm -hmm. really like that. Me too. It is that sort of big rule of improv. You know, when you're doing a scene with somebody, yeah, you should be doing something. Yeah, you should put yourself in a space and there should be something happening. But the biggest thing is it's about the relationship. It's not necessarily about what people are doing. It's about what this thing means to the people around you. And so it sort of accelerates things by moving the plot forward, getting people in out of their homes into new situations, giving them very low stakes sort of things to deal with, but never sacrificing the history that these characters with them in every single situation that they're in. So should we finish up with Jody? Yes. She is the third friend played by Jennifer Goodwin. She's from Once Upon a Time. She was in Big Love. That was my first exposure to her. Yeah. Well, my first exposure to her, although I probably don't remember it, it's from the show Ed. Did you ever watch Ed? No. Yeah. No, the Michael Ian Black show? Uh, he was the best friend to Tom Cavanaugh who played Ed. And it was, I can't even remember the premise. It was like Ed quit his job and like opened a bowling alley or something. And it was just like about living in New Jersey. Uh, so let's talk about Jody. Jody is feeling unappreciated by her kids and unseen in her marriage. Her husband, Dan, is the butt of constant jokes from her and her friends. After Colleen's death, she vows to get into better shape, which leads to flirtatious interactions with her personal trainer, Matt. Jody and Matt can only pretend their feelings aren't mutual for so long until they kiss. And she's, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, this is too much. And she's like, no, I want to kiss. And excited to go all the way with their affair, Jody vows to lose six to eight more pounds before they can do the nasty. Eventually, they do the nasty, and Jody has very little guilt about it until Dan almost catches her in a lie. The series ends on Jody telling Dan she is unhappy with her life, 
while he surprisingly wants to fight for her and to my great surprise, which I enjoyed, does not react with anger. Yeah. And Jody is left on both sides of the fence. So she is really living a double life where she lied to her husband that she was sick. She was going to go to this work thing with him. Then she went to the trainer, but then Dan came home early from the work thing and she wasn't home and she didn't have a good lie for why she was gone. And that sparks her to finally be like, I'm not happy. You don't treat me well. You don't respect me. The kids don't appreciate me. This doesn't work. And I, I mean, I kind of hate to say it, but from a narrative standpoint, I love how unashamed she is of the affair Mm-hmm. I love that like this is all improving her life and her point of view and her emotional health, you know, and she really is finding herself in a way. Absolutely. The sort of the quote unquote rash decisions that each of the characters make in the wake of Colleen's death. Other than, you know, Amy's is pretty like, I want to spend more time with my kids that's happened before that's not necessarily something that could be seen as self-destructive sarah and jody's however the decision to quit your job the decision to have an affair or at least follow your passion that is something that can almost always be turned into a negative and be seen as reckless and yet like you said the thing that makes these situations so much more unique is that they do have agency and they do have control and they are actually being fulfilled in a number of ways because of those decisions that they're being made. And I love the way that Jody and Matt's affair stacks up and the way it sort of compounds over time. It's not necessarily like he always wants to hook up with her. It's not like she always wants to hook up with him. They just, I think, make each other feel good and they do a really good job at establishing that early on. And in a lot of ways sometimes i think the best ways are when she compares the attention that she gets from him to the attention that she gets from uh dan like one of the one of my favorite i think one of the most telling examples is there's the episode where (laughs) she's texting matt about how she can't wait to sleep with him again but she accidentally says like can't wait to do sexy things with you to her husband And then she gets like ashamed of that. Like, oh no, I might've spoiled it. Uh, But her husband or Dan sends a thumbs up emoji. And then when she actually sends the text that she meant to send to Matt, he's got like fireworks and hearts and like eye popping emojis. And so it does feel ingrained in how they communicated just more so about how they're listening to themselves as opposed to reacting wildly to this pivotal thing that has happened in their lives. Yeah. Like Dan, he isn't super mean or anything. He's just a wang. He just, right. He's just like kind of dumb, kind of nothing. He's just like an empty face with nothing yeah. behind it and he he's in a routine he doesn't appreciate her and he just he he emotionally neglects her 
because he thinks everything's fine. Yeah. So because he's fine because he's nothing. Yeah. Have you heard of the concept of uh, Hanlon's razor? No. It's this idea that just because somebody is oblivious doesn't mean there's malice behind it. And I think he's like the perfect embodiment of it. It just is so emblematic of what Dan is in her life and also what he is in like their friends' lives too. Like they're not, they never are saying Dan is like a bad guy. He's just never there. Like they make bets about what sort of excuse Dan is going to make to not show up for these general, like larger friend gatherings. Mm-hmm. And then when, like when Jody lays down the hammer and she says, I don't want to, I don't think I'm getting as much out of this relationship as I'm deserved. And she goes out, he goes over to Henry or he goes over to Brian's to hang out with Brian and Henry. He's like, I want to hang out with my two best friends, Brian and Henry. And you yeah. buy it like that. That's what he thinks this is. Right. He thinks they're best friends and they barely know him as a person and actively make fun of him. But yeah. he just, he's so unaware. He is, this actor is really good at smiling and, you know, he's got kind of a classical handsome guy face. And I don't know, that guy has this energy where it's not, relaxed it's like stagnant in both of these characters he somebody says something to him and the energy just sits there in some ways i'm not like i'm not i I don't think this guy nothing really against him i don't think he's the greatest actor in the world or anything but i think this is something pretty unique that this specific guy brings to the table yeah He fulfills a need for this character, and as does Jennifer Goodwin. I think she is the perfect sort of, she's shy, she's timid, she is, she cares a lot about the people around her. You could tell that just the way that she carries herself, that she tries not to take up that much space, which really works for that character. And yeah, I I thought she was exceptionally well cast in the show. Agreed. Um, I think it's about time to get to these Dunzo Awards, John, after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest, whatever it is. We have decided to acknowledge certain elements of this show or the entire show itself as Ian is wont to do. But <laughs> without further ado... I'm a sick bitch. without further ado ian thomas hamilton what is your first dunzo award 
my first award is the Unhinged Award. And that goes to every scene where they are going out with Colleen's ashes like she's still alive. (laughs) That aspect was so funny to me. They're just like having a picnic with her ashes and talking to her like she's there. They go out like to the club with her ashes. They buckle her ashes in the seat and up with the seatbelt in the car. I, I have this image of them just like holding holding the ashes and be like, wee! I, I can't remember why, but that's also just the feeling. They're just like, it, it, it's like if you were holding hands and skipping with your best friend, only one of them is ashes. <laughs> it's and so it, funny. It is. It's great too, because it's not like a traditional urn. Like it doesn't have that sort of shape. It is like a marble cube. It is so, it does have this sort of like, regalness that doesn't necessarily call to attention the death of it it just feels like somebody's like walking around like somebody has a pet rock but it is like their best friend and they do a good job too of like holding on to those connections too with Colleen outside of the urn too I like the episode where Amy keeps calling Colleen's number until Brian cuts off Colleen's number don't you ruin one of my dunzos Okay, I'll shut up. I completely agree though. It is a it's a joyous reunion of friends that just want to party. There's one oh, there's one great shot where Jody it's in like a split screen too. Jody has a shot glass on the on the urn and then just dumps the shot glass like and then like places the shot glass on That's right. the urn. That's oh, right. It's beautiful. I love how much fun they have with that. And I love, too, that they actually, because it looks like something that would be heavy, but they do the quick one line of dialogue that makes every sort of flurry and flourish make sense, where they're like, this is surprisingly light. They say that, so that way they could justify, like, throwing it around. I wonder if that was, like, an imp- improvised line, even. Uh, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo goes to the most aggressive passive aggression. And that will go to Gloria, the babysitter. Oh, yeah. So Ian mentioned it in Amy's uh, rundown, but Gloria is the babysitter. The kids love her. Henry loves her. The teachers love her. And Amy just finds her to be such a nuisance. Uh, And anytime that Amy is trying to take over some sort of aspect of parenting, Gloria is always coming back with like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't need my help? And <laughs> Amy always does need Gloria's help, but Gloria will keep getting shoved off to the side. And she just has this way of, oh, like, I think there's one line where she says to Amy's daughter, Julia, or about Amy's daughter, Julia, like, oh, she's so surprised to see that you're home. It's just a lot of little jabs like that, and it never crosses a line, and there's never a confrontation. It's so polite. It's so kind, but it it cracked me up every time. I wish I wish there was more Gloria. Well, right, because Gloria is giving them all of the nurturing that the kids actually need, and then when Amy decides she wants to give it, all of a sudden she's feeling territorial, and I think Gloria is too because she's like, well— 
I'm the one that nurtures the kids. She loves those kids. Genuinely. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Right. So they're both, even though they're both doing what they're supposed to do, it's a funny dynamic. Yeah. I love it. Ian, what's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo was most touching storyline, which was the fact that Amy keeps calling Colleen's cell phone and leaving voice mails on there just to keep her involved in everybody's life. And that's kind of how she keeps her memory alive. And then when Brian cancels Colleen's number, um, some high school girl gets it and Amy like stalks her and, you know, tries to force her to give up the number so she can have Amy's number back. And then the girl is gonna until she's like, but I gave this cute boy the number and he hasn't called yet. And Amy like freaks out at her and overreacts and it's very funny. And then it's really sweet how her husband ends up, you know, probably bribing the girl for the number, gets a flip phone with Colleen's number on it so that Amy can just keep calling the number. And she said it was important for her to keep doing it because when the number was gone, it was like Colleen was gone all over again. Mm -hmm. And this is just her way of keeping her relationship with her friend alive. And it was just really sweet. It was sweeter than I thought it would be. Yeah. And it did have also an amazing payoff, too, when she's holding the flip phone and then the guy that the high schooler wanted to call back. Oh, yeah. Calls Actually it. Calls. He's, like, he's like, hey, sorry, I've been out on tour and I haven't been able to call you for a few days, but I really miss you, babe. Oh, yeah, because he's a Marine and everyone's like, he's not going to call. <laughs> that she just hangs up immediately and then tells Colleen about it, too, which is It's just... a good touch, too, because he, he's like calling from a satellite phone. Like, he really had to oh, yeah. know, work to get that call. Had on. to memorize them digits and, yeah, and Amy just hung straight up on him. I loved it. What's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo award goes to most scathing non-insult. Okay. And there's a line where, so Amy is, it's in a plot where Amy is worried about Henry suddenly dying because she doesn't want to be left alone with the kids. And Henry's going on this long run to spell out the word jets in his route, in his route, uh, which is just awesome. And, but in order to do so, he has to cross these like, highways and so the three friends are trying to find henry on this route and amy goes or sarah goes oh that's him and then amy says oh don't worry he's not that short and then sarah says he doesn't strike me as tall but maybe that's just his personality (laughs) that's that line just that line killed me that line killed me (laughs) Out of all the places to go, I thought you were going to talk about how Amy was worried that he'd get hit by a car and then ends up hitting him with her car. I mean, that's just good comedy, but I just really liked wow. he doesn't strike he doesn't strike me as tall, but maybe that's just his personality. Um, it tickled me. The I, and I also wanted then to talk about how great the dialogue in this show was. And specifically, it was very quippy. 
but it felt very lived in for a friend group. It wasn't like hyper realized. It just felt very jokey for people that like to razz each other. Okay. So anyone who listens to the show probably knows by now that I have historically a problem with quick witty dialogue where I feel like I can see the writing or I feel like the dialogue is so fast and quippy and furious that it takes away from the characters and it makes every character kind of the same. See our Studio 60 episode if you want to get more in-depth on me ranting about that sort of thing. But so this show does that. And it started out like that, and I wasn't super happy about it. And it got pretty expositionally expositional. And then the second episode started out with the hardest exposition I've ever heard. And I was just like, oh, my God. And so this show actually started out kind of, it had to win me over. Uh, I was very afraid of what it was going to be. And I was judging it early on. And I think that maybe I was right to judge it early on, but it did grow into something greater. I was really surprised with a lot of the narrative choices that they made and the fact that the characters could thrive regardless of the quick dialogue. Um, Like, yeah, just again, every time, they're, once per episode, they go somewhere and then just, it's not just hilarity ensue. They live in the space, the roller rink, uh, the, the, the track when Sarah's running the mile. The other two are just sitting on the bleachers talking. And it's actually a longer scene than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like the one when after Jody... Jamie? <laughs> Kidding. Where Jody thinks that uh, she's afraid that her affair gave her herpes. And so Sarah and Amy are, they're, they're all at a party. And there's this, you know, the bed of coats that everyone throws their, their coats under the bed at a party. And she's on all these coats, pants off, everyone looking at her hoo-ha, or the, her two friends. And they're just having full on conversations like this. And it is a way longer scene than you'd think it'd be, Mm. or it should be maybe. And in most cases it should be cut off soon, but this show just did it. They, they made that stuff real. They made some of that ridiculous stuff real. And this was not a run of the mill I'm a mom. Look at how crazy my life is. It's hard to be a wife and take care of the kids show. I would say they straight up ignored the kids a lot. Oh, yeah. Which was also part of the it was part of the plot, though, too. It was part of the characters that Amy was going to be. That was one of my like favorite kind of qualifiers throughout the show is that Amy says she's going to be a better mom in the afternoon. Every time, every time it's. I'm just trying to be a better mom in the afternoon. Right. I've been doing a really good job in the afternoon. It's never like touting that. It's always like, I'm just going to take this one step 
to make myself bring myself a little closer to my kids. I think the quippy sort of dialogue too, again, it didn't feel like stuff that wouldn't be said. Like there was this one line where they were looking at somebody's Instagram page and they were like, it had like good vibes only on it. And and it was like good vibes only. And they were like, good vibes only, like kind of disgusted by it. And I think it's Sarah that says, that doesn't seem very inclusive, which is just a good line. But I also could totally see you saying that or Chris saying that or like Liam saying that. Like I could see our friends saying something reactionary like that to something. And that I think elevated the sort of, because I, I'm a big fan of the hyper-realistic dialogue if it's part of the world. And this world was very lived in. And so therefore the dialogue needed to feel lived in, which is so hard to do. And I think it excelled at that level. Uh, another thing I love about the scene on the bed is that uh, Sarah finds out about the, the affair and she's like, oh my God, the affair was real. I thought you were just a desperate housewife. And they're like blaming... She's trying to deflect blame that Jody's trying to deflect blame that any of this is her fault. And she's like, if Brian had called me to help plan the party, then I wouldn't have ended up sleeping with Matt. And Amy's like, I respect the effort, Jody, but that's a reach. She's like, (laughs) I respect you trying to lie and get out of this, you know, mess and just lie your way, uh, lie the blame away. But. You got it wrong. And I, I loved that friendship connection. Yeah. And then you could just also have an episode open with a line like where, where they're making a dating profile for Sarah. And the first line of that episode is Amy saying, I'll say you like water sports because that'll make you 10% more attractive. <laughs> like hard open, no context. It's great. I could... Well, so it was about Tinder dating, right? It was about Tinder dating, yeah. And she was specifically talking about like water skiing and stuff. But that was, yeah, the fact that, you know, we can't just like quote lines like that. I think it speaks to the effort that went into creating these relationships and establishing it. And just to kind of hammer home the point, I really think the chemistry between these three is damn it john i was about to say how good the chemistry was well then say your piece baby doll come on uh i will say my piece after this commercial break and now a word from our sponsors so let's get into why the show was canceled um, surface level, low ratings. Sure. Boo. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, but wasn't quite pulling in the numbers that they hoped. Uh, the deadline article about it, I, I think, states the reasons pretty well. It says, according to some sources, Fox was high on pivoting and gave the single camera show a conditional renewal contingent on the series moving from Los Angeles to Vancouver to save money, Hmm. which was a no-go as the stars could not uproot their families. Hmm. Additionally, they were reportedly, there was reportedly a second attempt by the network to renew the series by asking for a substantial reduction of the license fee, whatever that means. Maybe it wasn't a 
production of the of Fox. Maybe it wasn't a Fox production, and therefore they needed to license the show from the production company. Yes, that's actually uh, exactly true because uh, the studio was different than the network. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wanted to reduce the license fee, which also was unsuccessful as the studio could not find quote find a way to do it. So I did find in the bowels of the internet a an interview that Liz Astroff gave only like a week ago. Um, it was also on a website that I'd never heard of before, and apparently our podcast streams on there too. <laughs> it's called like The Owl something. I'll cool. find it later. But I was like, oh, okay, great. Shout out to all our owl heads. Hoot hoot. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's put that on a t-shirt. Um <laughs> So I'm just going to quote her directly here on a couple bullet points. She's like, it was such a show, a financial thing between the studio and the network. The network loved it. Business affairs apparently called the studio's bluff is the way that she put it. Hmm. So basically they were like, shoot in LA, move to Vancouver, no, you know, try to do this, try to do that. And somebody, somebody drew a line in the sand and they were like, all right, do it. And then I guess they did. And they canceled it. If, if this makes any sense, That's uh, but, wild. right. She went on to say that Fox loved it. They wanted something to be edgier like this. So she actually pushed some of the story to, to be even more like raunchy and, and edgy. It's crazy because basically she talked a lot about how you cannot shoot anything in L.A. anymore. It's really expensive to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also did not want to uproot her family and none of the cast did. Um, and she just kind of talked about the state of things for a while in media, that they only put money into things that are cheap to produce uh, and that doing well creatively just doesn't matter anymore. Uh, the networks have so few viewers that they're just trying to keep keep people. They're mm. not even trying to gain numbers as much. They're just trying to keep the numbers that they have, uh, which was a pretty interesting insight because when she said it, I knew it was true, but I hadn't really thought of it like that before. So they just they they can't risk a lot. Um, also, she just brought up she didn't think Fox advertised them very much or very well. No, it was one of those shows that I remember like it popping up on my Hulu homepage. And I was like, I I love Eliza Coop. I'll watch her and every anything. Like, I'll give this a go eventually. And then it like right. disappeared from my homepage. And then it's like, okay. And then I saw it got canceled. I was like, Yeah, I that makes sense. I didn't hear anything about it. I had never heard of this until I read whatever article I read that was like in May and it was just a list of all of the shows that were canceled uh, the day before Upfronts. Mm-hmm. You know what Upfronts are? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Where like they, when, the, you when they are presenting the shows for advertisers uh, in order to gain advertising revenue for the upcoming season. Right. So it's when they bring out all the stops, they bring the stars out, they try to schmooze the advertisers in order to get them to invest in the show before it's it started airing. And this is a very old school model. They always do it in May for the fall schedule. Yeah, they and... started to adjust it a little bit um, in streaming. 
because everything's just all over the place. But yeah, that's this I, is a shame. Even Liz Astroff could not truly say what happened. I firmly believe that this should have been an FX show and not a Fox show. It reminded me sometimes in tone of the show Breeders. Did you ever watch that? The Martin Freeman show? No, I want to. That's got two seasons, right? Yeah, it's got a couple. I think they're doing a third as well. Uh, Breeders is a lot darker than this is, but I think let them swear a little bit more. Let them, you know, be a little raunchier. Let them dive into some of the darker parts a little bit more because I, I trust the creative team at this point to sort of handle that balance, put it on streaming, let people find it there because uh, just networks are for networks are for old people. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's I, I hate to generalize like that, but man, it just doesn't seem like anything besides a procedural can succeed in the current network. A procedural or a reality show can succeed in the network. Landscape. Yeah. You got to be a Dick Wolf show, a CSI or an NCIS. Otherwise you're dead. Or a JAG. If you're Melissa Harding's parents, they're not making more episodes of JAG. They'll they? try. They'll try. They're going to probably reboot it. Dude. I was looking at when I was doing research for ordinary Joe, they're doing re- a reboot of quantum leap. Like, who's going to watch that? Who is that for? Nobody. Uh, yeah, not Scott Bakula. I bet they're kicking him to the curb. <laughs> Actually, he'll probably make some sort of appearance. But He'll be like, hey, this is a pretty quantum leap. And then he'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a quantum leap. Uh, this, You know what it was? This show had ABC lighting with an FX energy to it. And... When I wanted to hate the show at the beginning, when I wanted to call it a Gilmore Girls type show, the lighting just really bothered me. I just really wanted it to be not as bright. It, it, I was like, just take take away some of this. We don't need to see every not wrinkle of their faces, you know? Well, on that note, good sir, I have one question for you, and that is... What do you renew? I would agree with the Rotten Tomatoes rating that I 100% would renew this show. I really, by the end of this, I just adored these characters. And I wanted to spend more time with them. Even Dan. Dan sucks. And he was fun to be around and I was happy that he was there and I wanted to hang with hang with the three of them and it was such an easy watch for me it made me I I think I watched all 10 episodes in two days and it never felt some of the shows that we've done for this podcast have felt like a chore I felt like I could put this on and enjoy minutes at a time enjoy hours at a time Really, this was a genuine surprise and delight for me to experience. With all of that praise being heaped onto these 10 episodes, Ian, would you renew? Going into it, I didn't think I would, but I would renew. I would. Yay! Uh, 
I wouldn't give it a hundred percent on Rotten Tomato. I mean, it's it's good writing to take a type of dialogue that I actively resent with a type of lighting that I actively resent with even some of the I don't know, you cast this stuff the wrong way and it wouldn't have been good. Agreed. Um I think they easily could have taken a route of just casting pretty people that weren't the best actors that can just say the lines quickly. And it avoided a lot of pitfalls, I think. I think this did really well despite what most networks would have done to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It was creativity in the face of real struggle. And, yeah. Could you, if this yeah. was noted to death, it, it would not have been good. It wouldn't have survived creatively. No. Um, but they let them do their thing. It's like borderline unique. It's unique and commercial running side by side. Mm-hmm. I think it has both. Agreed. And I'm very surprised that this was canceled. And I mean, I don't think it's that expensive to shoot either so that's always a little bit well if you're in la am i right am i right that's true that's true they they have unions in la um gross and i didn't want to like it but i did and i really did but for a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes just to add a little bit of drama to this podcast i wouldn't give it that i think a hundred percent would be me tuning in the time it airs every week this show is more like two or three episodes that come out. Me and Natalie, we catch up. A couple yeah. of weeks later, me and Natalie catch up again. You know, we just sit down, watch a couple episodes, get up, continue with our day. It's a very, it's a good escapist show. It's chill. It's funny. You don't have to think too much. It makes you think just enough. And I really loved it. And I can't believe I'm saying that. Uh, it uh, warms my cuckolds to hear you. I was say such like things. episode eight. I still wasn't sure because wow. I was like, they better stick this landing. You know, they better finish the season off strong, or else I'm out. Like, and then you just need a five minute montage of dancing with an urn, and then you you win over uh, that's Beardy how you Baldy over here, over. and then you're good. Yeah, yeah, d- dancing around with cremated corpses. And like, I think a big thing when it comes to would we renew is would I look forward to another episode? Do I want to know what happens? I would and I do. Yeah. More so than whether or not I enjoyed what I saw. Would I, am I anticipate, am I excited to come back to this world? Exactly. And that is one thing that I am. Yeah. It's not a perfect show. It's not supposed to be high art. It's supposed to be a dang good time, and they really succeeded. Well, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at TV. You can email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com. Do you have any suggestions for stuff we should do? I mean, we have a pretty long list, but I'll hear you out. You know, we could just add it to the list and get to it eventually. I mean, some things we really want to get to, and we have not because more recent things or better things come up. If you put something in our brain, like uh, what, oh, 
like Dane Cook's Tourgasm. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. Which was not on our list, but now that it is, feels like something we should get to soon for God knows what reason. Um, yeah, hit us up about an idea you have. Of course, you can send me money directly at Hamilton. I'll always take that sweet, sweet cash. And then, uh, sad news, everybody. I read today that uh, Joe Para was indeed canceled after three seasons. Um, I'm devastated. The community at large is devastated. Uh, the world is grieving, as far as I can tell. The birds have stopped chirping. The dogs are just laying on the cold ground whimpering. And the water doesn't come out the spigot the way it used to. And you know what the beautiful thing is? I'm the one editing this episode. <laughs> you can definitely watch How To with John Wilson on HBO Max. Wonderful examination of what it means to be a human in the world today. But I think with all of that being said, I think we are done. Turn it off. Boot nana, boot nana, boot nana. Oh! Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media. 